ActiveHistory.ca is pleased to present a recording of The Sweetest Sounds, Musical Life in Ontario, 1880-1920. This talk was delivered by Madeline Morrison as part of the Ottawa Historical Association Lecture Series. You can find recordings of other talks at ActiveHistory.ca. coming here tonight on what turned out to be a very cold and rainy uh, Tuesday evening. And uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to come and share with all of you something that I've worked on for upwards of six, seven years now. And uh, it's at this point, I'm I'm proud to say that it's not only an academic pursuit, it's also become quite a a personal topic as well. And uh, it's, it's really nice to be as enthusiastic, if not more enthusiastic, about your topic than you were when you started. Um, All those years later, not every single day, mind you, there were certain days in the archives when I I was not quite feeling the love, but in general, um, it's it's something that I, I really find fascinating. So my aim here today is not only to inform you guys about this topic, but also to try to translate some of that enthusiasm. And I hope, um, you're inspired in some small way to think about uh, Canada's musical history. So initially I started off by wanting to talk about my entire topic, music uh, music in the home in, uh, in Ontario, 1880 to 1920, and then that just started to get, uh, get crazy. Um, as my supervisor could tell, I wrote a very long thesis that would not work in a 30-minute presentation. So. Uh, I had to do a bit of cutting. And what I realized, looking at a lot of of what I've written and what I've been studying, is that a lot of it revolves around the piano. So if any of you, have we got any pianists in the room? Couple? (laughs) Well, I am, and that's that's what matters, right? So uh, I'm going to be talking about the role of the piano and um, piano music in, uh, in southern Ontario homes at around the turn of the 20th century. So, all of us being history people, the questions that hopefully we can all consider today is why is it important to study the history of musical activity and what can it tell us about Canadian society at the time? And these are questions really that historians bring to the table in most projects. But I've been getting a lot of, you know, there's, there's a certain idea because music is a leisure pursuit that somehow it's outside of history. It's something you do in your spare time to escape the world. It's just flimsy, you know, everyone getting together and singing. How is that historical? That's not meaningful. It's not war. It's not parliament. It's not big P politics. But what I'd like to argue here today is that you can actually tell quite a lot about Canadian society, um, particularly things like gender, class dynamics, uh, ideas of nationhood, ethnicity. So all sorts of these really big questions are kind of filtered into this, into these uh, very domestic, very circumscribed activities, I guess you could say. Now, although I am going to be talking mostly about music in the home, just as as a small reminder here of of all of the other aspects of music that take place in a society, in in Victorian society in this case. So this is what I'm going to be talking about today. But 
there is also music going on in local bands, some of which had a municipal link, others were associated with a particular regiment. There's also a lot of music going on in churches, both um, you know, hymn singers, choirs, and choral societies. Uh, Toronto, in fact, was known as the choral capital of North America. Interesting bit of trivia for you. Um, there are also lots of local musical societies where um, local patrons of the arts, especially women, would get together and they would have performing members who would put on uh, recitals on a monthly basis. And there'd be a different composer for every recital and there'd be themes. You'd also have private concerts. So it's really quite thrilling to hear about how some of the big stars of the day would traipse throughout southwestern Ontario and they'd perform at the local hall and everything like that. Operatas and amateur dramatics were a big part of uh, Victorian musical life too. Um, if any of you are fans of Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, I think just about every little hamlet in southern Ontario put on the Mikado at some point during this time period. And uh, the photos are amazing. And uh, finally, we also have music education, which is this wonderful, fascinating topic where you start to move from private teachers, you know, the widow down the street teaching you in her parlor, to going to a big conservatory and, and working from a syllabus that's uh, the same as somebody halfway across the country would have. So these are, this is kind of the whole background. There's a lot more going on here, just to give you an idea of some of the scope. And I'd, of course, be happy to field any questions about most of these things um, afterward. So when we talk about music in the home and, uh, and pianos and, and all of this, uh, this lovely entertainment, we're talking about one room in particular, which is the parlor. Now, theoretically, you could make music in any room of the house you wanted to. You could take your clarinet, you could take your banjo, but when we're talking about a lot of these prescriptive documents, the documents that tell you what, what it's important to do, the proper place to do music, the, um, all of these domestic scenes that are written about in literature, it's always very focused on the parlor. And that's for two reasons. The parlor had this dual identity as the room where you show off to company, and of course, what better way to show off than to uh, entertain them with music, and it's also, theoretically at least, supposed to be the room where the family celebrates togetherness. So that great Victorian ideal of the father and the mother and the children all around the family instrument singing nice uh, hymns or, or songs, all of that stuff is going on. So there's this whole, there's a very strong discourse around the parlor. And a whole terminology about the music starts to develop. So, for instance, if you happen to have a small organ in your parlor, it's called a parlor organ. The type of music, these uh, songs, these so short lyrical songs that people sing, are known as parlor songs or parlor music. And so it's very, very tied into the parlor space. So I'm going to be talking about the most popular instrument by far. And um, it's the keyboard, or more specifically, the piano, because by about this time, the organ was getting a little bit old. It was a little bit like, you know, the old station wagon that you wanted to trade in and get a nice newer piano. And we have some wonderful images here of these ladies who went to the trouble of getting their portraits taken by their instrument. And part of the reason why I love studying pianos is this dual identity. 
Pianos, in some senses, are a musical instrument or a means to an end. In other ways, they are an end in themselves. They're a status symbol. Does anyone have any clue why a piano, say as opposed to violin, clarinet, would be the instrument of choice for showing your status? Audience participation here? <laughs> exactly, it's expensive. A piano, in general, costs between about $250 and $400 at the time. And you would pay it on installments. And um, so this was kind of, I always equate them to cars, because this was the big ticket item that you would, you would pay. And this was really, you know, in, instead of having your Ferrari, you'd have your, your piano. Anything else? Harpsichords are not cool anymore. Harpsichords totally not cool anymore. That had to be cool for hundreds. Of this we're moving on. This is the this is the really uh, this is a new modern instrument. As you may be able to tell a little bit from behind in these photographs, they're very decorative. And so, a piano because it's so big because it's so massive, it's also a piece of furniture. And so there would actually be different pianos designed in ways to match the furniture in your parlor. So it's also another you know big, movable, or maybe not some immobile object that uh, shows your sense of decor um, and helps to create the magnificence of the parlor in the way that a smaller instrument does not. It's also fairly easy to learn. You don't need to tune a piano, or rather you do, but an expert does it for you. So um, for somebody who's just learning how to play, it doesn't have that terrible screeching sound, say, that a violin would. <laughs> And there are a lot of really important changes that are going on with the piano at this time period. Um, the first type of piano that you would have seen earlier on in the 19th century is called the square piano. And that's the lovely little image on the left there. And eventually, this is where all of the strings in the piano, um, for those of you who don't know the instrument, pretty much you hit down a key, it activates a hammer, the hammer hits a string, and that's what causes the sound. All of the strings were strung horizontally in a square piano, so that took up a lot of space. By about the 1880s onwards, you start to get the upright piano, where the strings are strung vertically, and that cut down on a whole lot of space. So if you had a smaller parlor, for instance, it made it a whole lot simpler to actually accommodate one of these instruments. Now, talking about the piano, there are some interesting dynamics at play, and one of them is class. In the early 19th century, pianos had been the preserve of the elites. So if you were in with Francis Bond Head and the family compact, chances were you had a piano in the early part of the century. By about the middle of the 19th century, um, Canadian manufacturers are starting to develop a little bit more, technology is improving, and pianos become this middle class icon. And so if you read any of the literature of the time, not only in Canada, but in US or in Britain, piano is just the symbol of Victorian gentility, this nice kind of domestic ideal. And this is a very, very popular symbol that in some ways still persists today. Now when I, when I start doing my research in the 1880s, a really interesting thing is happening here because uh, piano manufacturing techniques had industrialized even more by the end of the century. And all of a sudden, you're able to produce pianos a whole lot faster than you could, say, in the 1850s or 60s. And you're employing more people, factories are bigger, 
And so all of a sudden, the price of pianos drops again. It's still an expensive instrument, but a lot less so than it was even, you know, 20, 30 years previously. So for the very first time, by about the 1880s, 1890s onwards, you start to have people from the upper working classes able to afford these prized, you know, status-conscious in instruments. So if you were a member of the, what was called the upper or the respectable working class, or if you were a prosperous farmer who happened to be doing pretty well for yourself and you, you, you know, fairly established, and you'd also even get some of the more prosperous, more settled immigrants who'd be clamoring, clamoring after pianos as a way of showing that they made it in the new world. And sometimes you get families that would really scrimp and save. I read a really interesting book on Jewish families in New York City. And sometimes what they would do is they would save enough money to have a piano, and then the parlor would double as a bedroom at night. And people would pull out the cots all around the piano and sleep there at night, and then pull them all out again in the day so they could have a room to entertain. So this just goes to show you how important this is to people, not just because they want to make music, but also to their sense of image. And now the question is, if you've got this iconic middle-class instrument that you know is, is in art, in literature, everywhere, you know, for decades and decades, then all of a sudden the people of the uh, you know more wealthy people of the working classes are suddenly able to afford it. What happens? It starts to erode these traditional ideas that the piano is a middle-class instrument, and so advertisers at the time are walking a very thin line because on the one hand. They want to show, yes, you can afford a piano. You can afford a piano. Come on, all of you, buy an installment. You can all have a piano. But at the same time, they want to maintain that notion of status, that snob appeal. And so they've actually come out and say this in the trades magazines. We don't, we're not going to pander to bargain advertising because we want to show that you may be able to afford a piano, but if you can, if you choose to buy one, this puts you in the elite, in the aristocracy of the mind. So if I know it's a little bit blurry for those of you in the back, but what you will see here is, what is it meant to, when we say Mason and Rich pianos are the instruments of the cultured? We mean they are found in the homes of the most refined and cultured people throughout the lands. That the principal music institutions in Canada use Mason and Rich pianos. That the president of every university or large institution, and you can kind of get the drift here, that they're creating this image that the piano is affordable, yes, but not too affordable that it loses all of its sense of, uh, you know, I'll, again, the snob appeal that makes it worth having in the first place. And then, of course, if you've got these uh, pianos that everyone is buying, what do you do if you're one of the truly wealthy? Well, you've got to get a better piano than that, eh? And this is when we start having uh, grand pianos, but also these art pianos here, where those who truly do have money start demanding pianos that look a little bit different, because you don't want one that's the same as the farmer down the street. You want one that has you know, pretty Art Nouveau designs or painted, uh, painted panels or something to show that your piano, again, is, is, is the upper tier. So you start to get different types of pianos for different income brackets. So it's, it's absolutely fascinating. The other great part is uh, the Pianos Association with Gender. <laughs> I love this. This was my absolute favorite thing I found in the archives. Um, for
For those of you in the back, the, the inscription says, I'm taking piano lessons in Erin, Ontario. And we can all see what that involves. <laughs> now, pianos are par excellence, the uh, image of women, wives, but in particular young daughters who are learning to play piano. And this is at least partly based on this Victorian ideal of separate spheres. Now, for those of you who don't know what separate spheres is, pretty much it means that men and women are two halves of a coin, but two very different halves. So the man is strong, rational, intellectual. He goes out into the world. He does his hard work a day stuff, and then he comes back to his wife at night, who is spiritual, emotional, and plays some beautiful music to renew his soul at the end of a tough work day. So you can see how this all kind of feeds into this, uh, to this idea. Also, too, there was the notion, especially with young girls, that if you're sitting and you're practicing on an instrument for hours upon hours upon hours, the idea of discipline was very important, and it was teaching you to kind of serve others. Um, to practice doing something to serve your father is actually going to kind of, you know, to make nice music for him will train you to make nice music for your husband. So, again, it's all part of this... Uh, Start them early so they get used to uh, they get used to that service for the family role. And you can see this again in the advertisements as well. So we have this wonderful advertisement for bell organs and pianos based out of Guelph. And you may notice at the top it says pure as the notes of the bird, which is in theory talking about the beautiful sound of the piano. But you may also notice it could refer to the woman herself and that she's all in white, and uh, everyone is watching her in this lovely domestic setting. And I would say about 90% of the piano advertisements that feature some sort of a domestic setting all have women. Occasionally you'll get one with a man, but he's usually kind of a bohemian man who's up on a concert stage or something. So it, piano is very much the woman's instrument. Um, I didn't find too much details of this in the archives, but there was actually a bit of an urban myth going around that if you were a man and played the piano, you were a sissy. Um, but I found that to be, a, again, a bit more of a stereotype than something that was actually true. And, of course, all of these good daughters who are playing the piano are going to become wives and mothers in turn. And eventually, they are going to be playing piano and teaching their young daughters to learn as well. So we have again, a whole slew of ads that show the woman playing the piano and the daughter dancing beside. And it's all about teaching our children to appreciate music because then when she grows up and become a, becomes a mother, as of course she will, um, then she's going to teach music to her children. So you see how the female life cycle kind of perpetuates itself. It's never a male child, always a female one. There's also this notion, too, that... Pianos, but music in general, was part of what made homes, they called them the happy homes of Canada. It's part of what made families stick. And I have this lovely photo of the Little Hales family here. If you have people who play different instruments all playing together, it forms a sense of cohesion between members in this uh, lovely nuclear family. And about the turn of the 20th century, you're starting to get those new commercial <coughs> amusements such as uh, oh, movie theaters, you're starting to get um, oh, amusement fairs, and activities that take place for young people outside the home. 
And so music, a lot of people in, in, uh, in magazines and newspapers are writing in to say, you know, if they'd only been in a musical home, if mother had only played the piano, then, you know, Gertrude wouldn't be running off to the ice cream parlor at goodness knows what hour. <laughs> so we have this lovely quotation here from the Farmer's Advocate in 1906. Music is a magnet which attracts young people to home. There will be less attraction outside, in the saloons, on the street corners, and worse. If parents would strive to cultivate the minds of their children by good music when they are young, as they grow to be young men and women, they will appreciate it, and they will prefer the home music and entertainment to that which is vainly sought at dancing halls and cheap theaters or shows, and which is the ruin of so many young lives. Young people must have fun, and if they cannot find it in their homes, they will seek it elsewhere. So again, this is not music in the home is not only a form of entertainment, it's a moral alternative that's still supposed to be fun as opposed to those uh, immoral versions of fun elsewhere. Now, moving on from piano, talking about what types of music did they actually play? Well, classical music, needless to say, was, was quite popular at the time. And in a way, a lot of pieces that we would consider classical and very upper crust right now were very well known, so well known in fact that they were actually popular pieces. So the definitions of what is classical, what is popular changes over time. So how many of you guys, have anyone been to see an opera lately? Oh, one, two. But opera is kind of the, you know, the absolute pinnacle we like to think of classical music and elitism. At the turn of the 20th century, opera was considered popular music. So everyone knew all of the latest arias. The opera singers were kind of like American Idol. Um, they were so well known, they were, they were popular stars. So there was a notion of classical and popular music, but it, again, it was a lot, it was different than it is today, and it was kind of more fluid in some senses. The other thing they like to play, in addition to all of these, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, you've also got popular sheet music. And this is where I'm going to try to see if I can uh, get some of my audio to work here. Uh, Library and Archives Canada has digitized a lot of these uh, very you know, inexpensive pieces of sheet music that were created a dime a dozen by, you know, some by professional composers and some by people who thought they could be professional composers. <laughs> they only tried hard enough. And so uh, you get the good, the bad, and the ugly in here, along with a lot of really fabulous art. Um, this is one of my personal favorites here. You may notice it's called, Oh, What a Difference Since the Hydro Came. And it's from 1910. And it's all about, um, there's a young man and a young lady and they're accustomed to going into the dark corners of the park to uh, spoon, I think is the term they use. But since the hydra has come along, the police officer can just see into every nook and cranny. And the actual chorus, I believe, goes, you dare not try to kiss her, the hydra is to blame. Ho, ho, what a difference since the hydro came. So, I mean, this is all pretty fun, and I, I love the faces on the, on the uh, light bulbs. But again, we can see how things like technological change are being translated into even such an, an ephemeral source as a piece of sheet music. Now, I'm going to see if I can. I have this actually recorded or on the internet. I don't know how well it's going to project. So you guys can wave your hands if you can't hear it, and then maybe I'll stop and might have to do some really bad singing. But we'll try. Is that projecting at all? 
he'll start to sing soon. You only do the first verse, but it does actually continue. And you thought that the Vancouver Olympics was the only uh, ridiculously corny Canadian patriotic song. Patriotic songs were really big at the turn of the century, especially after about 1900 when imperialism is starting to kind of get a little stronger and people are starting to rattle their metaphorical sabers. Um, John, Jack Canuck, as you are probably able to, to divine, is uh, Canada's equivalent to Uncle Sam or John Bull, except he's usually portrayed as very young, you know, very uh, strong, mighty young man, and that's supposed to reflect Canada's youth. And you can sort of see here, there's actually quite, in the later verses, there's, you can get a, quite a sense of Canadian nationalism at the time. He doesn't care for ceremony, flummeries, and frills, for he lives too close to nature on the prairies and the hills. So again, there's this notion that, say, England is getting a little over, you know, over-civilized, over-caught in class politics, in aristocracy. We're a young, we're a fresh nation. Um, let's see, we do have our Maple Leaf emblem already. And let's see here, let's maybe go to the their next. Here's the big one. There's a silver-haired old lady in an aisle across the sea. Far, far away, my lad, far away. And Jack's the eldest grandson that she dangled on her knee. She's proud of Jack, I proud of him her eldest daughter's son, and as for Jack, he thinks old granny's still the only one, and foes who threaten granny will find they have to buck Jack Knuck. <laughs> Any idea who granny is? <laughs> England, exactly. And we even have references to some um, immigrants that are coming, that big push for immigration during the Clifford Sifton age, the early 20th century. We have, some of us are Irish and some of us are Scotch, and some are betwixt and between, but it doesn't matter whether British, French, or Dutch, we're Canadians and we're proud of it, I mean. Now you notice how they're very selective in these lovely uh, descriptions of which are the, uh, which are the immigrants that make, up can make Canada great. But we haven't any use for those whose one abiding hope is to find some spot where they may sit and fold their hands and mope, for they're the kind of people that this country ought to chuck, says Jack Canuck. So you can even see twinges of this kind of, you know, um, 
a bit of bigotry about the, the immigrants coming. So a simple song like this just has absolutely so much. And that's just even looking at the lyrics. If you look at the music itself, you're able to see certain things, what words are accented. Um, you might have noticed that bit of a martial air that was very big at the time period. And so these songs are just absolute minefields. And there's thousands upon thousands of them um, at LAC. So small plug there. <laughs> And another thing that was coming that was uh, fairly, becoming fairly popular after 1900 is this uh, wonderful thing we call ragtime. Um, I have this example of uh, Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag here. And I'm not including a clip because I figure most of you know what ragtime sounds like. But it was very, very new and very different um, because it was syncopated. And when we mean syncopated, we mean short, long, short. So instead of da, 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 it's da, 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 da. And this was considered the music of urban life, the music of young people. And the thing that really freaked out um, commentators in Ontario is that it was also music associated with African Americans. Never mind that most of the people writing the popular you know, popular songs that are, are commercially sold in the press were actually white. The fact that they were based on rhythms from African Americans really, really worried some people because all of a sudden, nice young girls are playing tunes from uh, the deep black south in their parlors. So we have this young woman of refinement who had been trained in the school of Beethoven and Mozart and Chopin cast aside their sonatas and symphonies and nocturnes and gave themselves up to unbridled indulgence in ragtime. The effect of all this upon popular music taste has been anything but elevating. It has a tendency to cheapen and vitiate the most beautiful of all arts and the reaction which marks the fall of, and I'm sorry, the coon song and the hoedown ought to be gladly welcomed by every true lover of music. So you can also read a lot about race in music too. And when they talk about ragtime, they describe it as a fever, going to the limbs, not the head. And again, you can see these, all of these racial dynamics of white man, rational, you know, non-white man, irrational, these very stark dichotomies. So looking at anything about ragtime can tell you an awful lot about racial stereotypes at the time. Now, the next part in this chapter is we've, we have what I've just been describing has kind of been the vic late Victorian status quo. Things start to really change beginning around 1900 and really getting into gear around 1920 that shift the, uh, shift the terms absolutely dramatically and kind of unfortunately spell the end of this great era of uh, people making music in their homes. And what I'm going to be talking about, first of all, is the player piano and then the uh, recorded music, the gramophone. But to give you an idea of musical technology at its as it stood, say, about 1890, I'm going to show you the music box. This was mechanical music, Victorian style. Imagine listening to that for eight hours a day. Um, doesn't really bear much resemblance to, you know, it it's all sounds nice and pretty with cute little chimes, but uh, does it sound like actual, you know, recording device? Not so much. Then all of a sudden, 
starting about 1897 is when the player becomes invented, and it starts to become sold commercially a few years after that. You start to get, initially it was the piano player. And if you can take a look at this cartoon, you can see it's actually not a piano itself. It's an attachment, a very big and cumbersome attachment that you would wheel up to your piano. And it would have these little fingers that would poke the keys and on an actual piano, and it would play the piano for you. The player piano develops around 1904-1905, and instead of having to buy a separate mechanism, you've actually got it all in one here. And the way a player piano operates is you pump with your feet down here, or down there, and that creates a series of um, a flow of air. And it's a bit, little bit, they're called pneumatic valves, so the pressure of the air going over these valves causes um, the keys to push down. So in a way, it's like the piano is playing itself. And so keep in mind that Victorian music box we heard before. I'm going to give you an example of what the player piano sounds like. was also a ragtime tune, so we kind of killed two birds with one stone there. <laughs> but you can hear that that actually, you know, it is a piano sound. And you have got a mechanical instrument playing itself. And this was revolutionary at the time. If you think of the consequences here, it means that all those women who spent hours upon hours upon hours of their childhood and girlhood learning all those skills, suddenly you've got a machine to do it for you. It also really worries piano teachers because they're saying, you've got a machine to play your instrument. What's the use of taking music lessons anymore? And on a sort of a more metaphysical front, it also starts to beg the question of what is art and what is music. So that sounded like music. We'd all agree it was music. But if it's not produced by a human, it's being produced by a, you know, the passage of air over valves. Um, according to this music roll that, that glows, goes through and sort of passes over, then if a machine is producing it, is it art? And advertisers find a really interesting way around this because on the one hand, they're super excited. This means that even if you never had a lesson in your life, you can go out and buy a piano and you can suddenly enjoy music. So it opens up a whole new consumer base. On the other hand, they're really worried that, you know, what does this mean for art? So they came up with a really ingenious solution that this just takes care of the mechanical part of playing. And in fact, manufacturers made a whole bunch of what they called expression levers and valves all across the front. So let's say you've never had a lesson in your life. You go up to a piano and this takes care, the player piano takes care of the technique but you are the person that puts in the artistic heart and soul, that musical sense that lies within all of us, even if you've never had a lesson. So there are proper ways of playing a player piano. You have to adjust the volume. You can adjust the speed. Um, I never quite understood when they talk about certain other expression levers exactly what that did. Maybe it didn't do anything, but they certainly thought it did. And so you are the one giving the art. And so this is kind of their way of dealing with, with this very new mechanical device. 
then, just when they think they've got their, they've got their uh, foot around the uh, player piano, you get another problem, the talking machine. The talking machine, I like to call it this. Some of you may know it as the phonograph, the Victrola, the gramophone, and those were all sort of patented names by different companies. The talking machine is what I found most in the primary sources, and it's also a nice generic name for all of these different you know, company patents. So we have Thomas Edison's phonograph here, Emile Berliner's gramophone, and these instruments were available in Canada from 1900 onwards. Now for a long time, no one wants anything to do with them. They call it canned music. Now you would think it'd be super cool. Hey, you finally got recorded sound, people. You know, aren't you going to go buy it? Well, they thought that it was inferior to live performance, and it sounded tinny. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can pull that up, because I'd really like to show you, again, the evolution of that sound. This is from around 1916, evolution. If you can uh, discount the kind of scratchiness of age and everything, that was a Canadian, very famous Canadian violinist by the name of Kathleen Parlow. And so all of a sudden, you're able to hear a violin, you're able to hear a singer, you're able to hear an orchestra. And that, again, to our mind, entirely revolutionizes things. People are not so keen on it from about 1900 to 1914, because at first it was billed as a mechanical device. And eventually, they started, advertisers started to realize that we're going to have to build this more as a work of art. And so what they started to do was they would actually have concerts where people like you would come in here and they'd sit up a, a talking machine and play music. And that would be the concert. Um, because they were trying to show you that it was a work of art. Another um, wonderful thing they used to do is they would have, say, an opera singer on a big stage in a theater, and then they turn out all the lights, and then the lights would come back on, and you'd still hear the singer singing, but it had been switched to a machine while the lights were off. And all of these were, were very persuasive means to try to convince people that this is not just a machine playing canned music, this is actually real music, you know, just being projected out. And I'm just going to show you a bit um, of World War I sheet music very quickly. Um, just to give you an idea of how things, yeah, <laughs> literally very quickly there. Um, this is just to show you how, again, when war comes, things, again, war just throws a wrench in everything again. Um, on the one hand, you've got some really interesting sheet music that gets written. Because, hey, we've got an enemy, we've got a real war now, so we don't have to start making uh, songs about Jack Canuck being prepared to fight. Jack Canuck's actually going to fight now. And uh, in a kind of macabre way, there's some that are kind of, you know, the fact that they wrote a lovely little song with a pretty watercolor on the front, on the sum front, or what the deuce do we care for Kaiser Bill, just about everybody who ever wanted to be a composer thinks the war is a great excuse for writing whatever song they want. And they 
And veterans sell them to try to raise money when they come home. Um, patriotic um, associations have charity recitals. So in addition to the fact that these are songs that people are playing to kind of get soothed about the war, to stir their patriotism, it's also a great money-making way to help support the Allied cause. These are a few um, home front ones. We've got the ammunition girl who's working in the factories. And then, Will Daddy Come Home Tonight, a pathetic song by Edwin Hull. In fact, so many um, songs are written during this time period that musicians start complaining in the press about all of this crap. They're just saying, so many songs are being written, it's actually harming the Allied cause because these songs are just so bad that, uh, you know, it would just be better. I mean, they think they're helping, but really, it's just, they should just stop right now. So, uh... And, but there's also a, a more insidious problem with the war in music. And there's this notion that, yeah, it's okay to buy maybe a two-cent piece, but uh, you shouldn't be buying a piano or a violin or going out to a big concert during war because that money could have been used you know, to help the Allied cause. It could have been used for the Belgian women and children. And so music manufacturers, piano manufacturers in particular, because their instrument is so big and so expensive, are in a lot of trouble because nobody wants to uh, be plunking down the money on a large instrument. And there's also the slightly problematic twinge that a lot of the classical composers happen to be German. Never mind that they had lived a hundred years before the Kaiser was even born, they were German. And so there's, this, there's a lot of very angry talks in the press about should Beethoven have been played at the symphony recently? So. What they start to do in, uh, in retaliation is they start to say music is a necessity, not a luxury. Um, if we're going to actually have enough energy to get up in the morning, to go to uh, the war factories, to knit socks for the soldiers, all of us on the home front, then we need some beauty in life. And frankly, you know, if, unless we have art and beauty, isn't that what we're fighting for as a democratic nation? And what sort of world are we going to be creating after the war if we obliterate all sense of art and culture and, uh, and civilization? So that's what we call the music in the home movement. Now, the end of my era and the end of this talk, really, is reaches the, around the year 1920 because this really ushers in a new era, a new change. Um, when I talked about during the war, people not wanting to spend a lot of money on a big, bulky piano, well, all of a sudden there's this thing called the talking machine that's smaller, cheaper, and hey, I can get a whole bunch of records and it's kind of new and easy to carry around with me. So recorded music, although it had been around since about 1900, it really starts to take off during the war because it's a cheaper alternative. Um, we also start to get the beginnings of the radio era in the early 1920s. And so, again, that's changing things as well. And all of a sudden, where you'd had music that you actively produced, or in the case of the parlor piano that you kind of, you know, they produce the mechanism, you produce the art. We sort of had a half-and-half half system there. Now, all of a sudden, we've got passive music consumption, where you sit back and you turn a crank, and then you let the music come, on your talking machine or your radio player. So what we start to see, and it's a very, very quick dramatic decline, is about 1923, 1924, the piano and organ industry in Canada, which had had several, several factories, loses, I'd say, about 50% of its factories 
over the 1920s. And then whoever doesn't get you know, bankrupt by the 1920s does in the 1930s when the depression hits. And so after about, you have about two companies by the post-war period, two or three, the last one dies out in the 1980s. So you had this very, very rich, thriving manufacturing industry at the turn of the 20th century, and it's just decimated um, very, very um, dramatically beginning in the 1920s. So this is really the end of, end of an era, in a way, because this large swath of the population is no longer making music on their own anymore. So uh, it's a nice little end. I mean, you got the Charleston, but you lost the, you lost the parlor songs, unfortunately. <laughs> So uh, thank you so much for, for being here today, and uh, I'd love to hear any questions you have or anything you'd like to discuss more, because, uh, again, I hope uh, I find this fascinating, and I, and I hope you did in some small way, too. So thank you. You've been listening to a recording of The Sweetest Sounds. Musical Life in Ontario, 1880-1920. The talk was delivered by Madeline Morrison as part of the Ottawa Historical Association Lecture Series. You can find recordings of other talks at activehistory.ca.